Social experiment number. Ugh. Social experiment number 427. Mm. Day one on Twitter. I'm watching the episode of Seinfeld where they end up in the back of the limo. You know, George and Jerry do the Nazi leader. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where where uh, uh, Kramer <laughs> gets on stage and goes on. Uh, about yeah. Jews. Did, was it about Jews? I thought it was about black people. Oh, you it was about black people. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I remember that. He, he fucked up his career. That <laughs> was the end of him. Yeah, I don't know. I saw him in a magic show a, a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's, 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 uh, at this kid's birthday party. I think he's doing okay. <laughs> Let's see if Michelle Obama will, will come on. Hopefully uh, she's going to respond. Well, you never know. Oh, I spelled Obama. Hey, buddy. How are you? You know, never mind. Whatever. What's up, guys? Somebody had me blocked on there, so I was like, fuck it, I'm out. I'm only blocked by one person on Twitter, and that's Robert fucking Salas, of all people. I don't know what I did to the guy. I reached out and asked him if he wanted to help spread the message about what's going on, and he just fucking You know what you ass. fucking <laughs> did, Rob. You know what you fucking did. Don't, don't lie to this guy. No, I really don't have a clue. How many fucking dick pics did you send him? Oh. Ultimately, we're going to help bring balance, and part of that balance is returning the knowledge to the women about the reality of what happens during these matriarchal shifts. Wouldn't that be considered mansplaining, though? Like, in today, say, like, I mean, isn't it? Like, how do you do that when we're in this fucking environment? I, I got banned. Uh, Bill Clinton is actually my physical neighbor, and we got into an altercation here in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and I was banned for about four months. And so I, I've got another... <laughs> I deal with like plasma frequencies. I build uh, ionic generators, random bullshit. I'm an engineer that's retired, so I got nothing better to do. My other handle is called Super Freak. In many parts of Africa, our ancient religion went underground, and there were called them secret societies all over Central Africa and West Africa. This knowledge was kept by aging guardians, many, many of whom did not know that in other parts of the land, there were other guardians who were doing exactly as they were doing. Missionaries had told us as children that the only light came to Africa with white people, that before the white men came, We black people had no idea about God. We had no belief in a life after death. That our people were just a race of savages. Africans had in fact been far greater intellectually than the missionaries were willing to give them credit for. In some places in southern Africa, If you wanted to learn the secrets of a certain secret society, you had to do dreadful things which I cannot repeat here. At one time, in the west of what is today Zambia, my teacher said, how far are you willing to go in order to become one of us? I said, I am willing to go anywhere. He looked at me and he said, listen, educated man, 
We are tired of people like you. White men come amongst us to milk our minds and then to kill us. We want to be sure that we can trust you. I said, great one, I am willing to do anything. He said, are you? I said, yes. And then they went into a graveyard. They removed the hand of a corpse dead two days and they brought it and they challenged me to cook it and eat it. I did so. And these were the people who first told me about a race of highly intelligent beings which they called the Chitauri, the Tokas, a race of creatures which look like reptiles who have ruled the world for hundreds if not thousands of years. off-grid property out here kind of in the bush and I, I split my time between here and another off-grid property i have in alaska uh i needed to come over here and take care of a couple of loose ends so here i am but um i, I was just going to share something with you guys i hadn't thought about this in a long time I, it's it's one of the one of the exposures that i had when i was younger while i was in the service um and i don't recall having more than one while i was in the service 
but this occurred while I was in the Coast Guard and I was taking training at the training center on Governor's Island, New York. I was going through track school for electronics technician and it was in the 19, very early 1980s. It was close to noon, I think. I was a barracks captain, so I put the group through the, the barracks cleanup and made sure we were inspection ready. About one o'clock, I broke away with my friend Kevin. We we got up and we were we were looking west, and so the training center um, on on one end on the east end is the Brooklyn Bridge. Okay, the Coast Guard Governor's Island is an island right off of the uh, Staten Island ferry, and then if you look due west, it's uh, Staten Island. So we got up and we were we were looking west, and right on the horizon, coming over Staten Island, was the most terrific dark green thunderstorm that you could imagine. And uh, um, just just a second. Attention, all members of the society stuff. Season three will begin with the Inquisition of Ted Rowe. Thank you so very much for your membership. If you've received a telegram in the mail asking for your research support, please check your decoder ring and make sure that the line of April is in tune with the moons of Saturn. If you don't know what that means, then you haven't been initiated into the adept level yet, in which case you should seek out a senior member and force them to reveal their secrets to you. Oh, oh. Sorry, fellas. I've, um, I, I usually live alone. <laughs> I so prefer it. So anyway, I look out due west and I see this big dark green cloud. I mean, it was miles across and it was uh, low to the ground and it had a huge curtain of rain underneath it. Really, really thick, heavy rain. And it was still over Staten Island. So it had a couple of miles to go before it got to the Coast Guard base. And right in the middle of, of Governor's Island is a big open area for Hilo Ops right? A big staging area. So I saw this thing coming and, the, and it was moving pretty quickly. So I thought, hey, you know, I'm going to run up and I'm going to get on the west end of the uh, Hilo op area and try and catch this first point of rain as it's coming and see if I can outrun this curtain of rain. And so I see it and I turn and I start running and this thing is right behind me. And then boom, it just drops on me. And then I, I get to my uh, my friend, and he loads us in the car, and the, the storm is going over us. Now, I have no idea that there's anything in this thing at the time, and I'm not thinking about UAP experiences. And so we get in the car, and we roll around. Now, there's a marina on the east end of Governor's Island, and, and it's got a, a parking lot that's kind of tiered above it. And then, you know, you can go down to the slips where the, the boats are. And there's a, a an air vent for the subway line going into Brooklyn, and then the, the Brooklyn Bridge. And so we pulled up and we stopped, and then this storm just was beating the crap out of us. Like the wind, and, and there was lightning, and you know it was all big, dramatic, and pretty cool. Um, and then all car rocked, big flash of light, car rocked like I saw it literally dump off the foot and a half or so. Hey, thanks, Alphabet agencies. I turned, I looked at Kemp, who was sitting in the driver's seat. You're doing a great job. I was trying to sit upright, so I, I tried to correct, and my head hit the glass, and that's the last I remember. Um, when we woke up, I remember looking out the window, and I could see the sidewalk was drying, and it was just wet around the leaves that were laying on the sidewalk. Otherwise, it was dry. And Kevin was wedged between the steering wheel and the door, and I was sitting in my seat, so I, I started to sit up and realized my coat was caught in the door. I couldn't sit up because my coat was tied in. I could barely move. I sort of like, it was like that paralysis thing. I reached over and I tried to swat Kevin, 
little bit just to kind of jolt him and wake him up, which he did do. And he started to extricate himself because he was between the steering wheel and the door. You know, he was wedged right in that, that spot. He wasn't up against the seat. And so he started getting himself together and I pulled myself together. And now we were both electronics techs in training. And the only thing we could come up with was that there was some electrical anomaly with the storm that had knocked us out. And I lived with that explanation for a long time until I started putting it all together. I don't have a lot of memory of anything happening. I didn't see anything, but nothing about the situation was right. The car shouldn't have moved. I, I, I was, I remember one time I was parked in front of Portage Glacier up here in Anchorage some, some years ago and, and the wind came and picked up the front end of my car. And it was kind of like that, but it was 120 mile an hour wind. And we were in a spot where the wind could get under the vehicle a little bit. I felt it lift the front of the car. So do you suspect anything? Do you have any hypothesis as to what it could be? Oh yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm pretty sure it, it's, it's, it's part of this, this pattern that I've lived in my life. Usually I see the devices, but sometimes I don't, I wasn't thinking about it. I wasn't studying the cloud to see if there was anything to be seen in it. I didn't deduce anything further. There was really no evidence to it. Was that the beginning of uh, many more experiences, Ted? Actually, you know what? It, it was actually the end of a series. And then there was nothing for about 15 years that I remember. And then I started having exposures and uh, happening, you know, and, and around friends. People were seeing them with me, this kind of thing, coming up close. So there seemed to be a cycle to it for a while. It was like um, it happened a bunch in my uh early to late teens and early 20s and then it didn't happen at all until my late 30s and then i went through a, a number of them and then it, it kind of tapered off and then i got involved in ufology and um, i've had a couple since but not not with the kind of density that i had before was there any correlation between you going through quite tumultuous times within your life and um, having experiences yeah you know sometimes it does um I, 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 most of my life was bad. I mean, I'm, I'm di diagnosed with CPTSD and general anxiety disorder. So I, it's been rough all along and some days are better than others. And some parts of my life were better than others. And I live a lot better now. I, I've done a lot of personal work, but, but for a lot of my life, but it, 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 but it was hard to correlate it because I had a lot of, a lot of disruption, a lot of upset in my life. So. Does any of that, uh, anxiety and, and trauma come from your time in NARCAP? Well, um, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, that added to it, but, but I had it all before. I mean, the hard part about doing NARCAP was not being able to talk about any of this stuff. You know, I had to go 20 years without this saying that talking about this would have got us shut down basically. I mean, nobody would have, it would have killed our credibility. Now it doesn't, but it did at the time. No. Now it's accepted widely. Yeah. And, and, you know, you take the ground while you can. I had the same problem um, when I spoke to the AIAA in 2021. I made it a point to tell them that I had seen a UAP and that I gave them a technical description. Of it. And the whole point was to, to get over this idea that people who've seen them can't talk about. Them. You know, it's about pushing back on the stigma and saying, hey, some of us as researchers have seen these things and we've got something to say about it. And we need to keep doing that. That's about pushing the stigma back. Do you think anybody else in the organization may come forth and give similar stories? You know, I, I, I wouldn't bet on it. Um, I mean, doc, Dr. Haynes is pretty well retired and he's in his mid to late eighties at this point. Um, uh, Dr. Heish has got health issues. We've lost Dr. McCampbell. Uh, 
Dr. Belize with us, but I, I don't know for how much longer. I, I was a little concerned when I saw him in France. So I don't know. I, I There isn't really a lot to tell about the NARCAP side of it. All we did there is document and advocate. And, uh, and we held the line, and eventually we came out on top when the government validated our concerns. But there wasn't a lot of trauma with that. It was basically research. There's, there were some times, though, I did have exposures while doing research for NARCAP. And that took some adapting. I've been out on, on sites where things happen and had things happen and at very close quarters, and that's been a, that's been a challenge, too. Uh, yeah. If you know who Erling Strand is from Hesteland, Norway, I met him at a site out in the dirt, and... Uh, yeah, we had exposures there. And Lester Velez, who's the head of OpusNet, which does uh, experiencer referrals to mental health professionals, he, he and I had, I don't know, probably one of the most remarkable moments anybody could have I think, in, in all of this. And um, we're still processing it. If you know who Erling Strand is from Hesteland, Norway, I met him at a site out in the dirt. And uh, yeah, we had exposures there. And Lester Velez, who's the head of OpusNet, which does... Uh, experiencer referrals to mental health professionals he, he and i had i don't know probably one of the most remarkable moments anybody could have I think, in, in all of this and um we're still processing it did you come across people that had sort of had a family history of things i discovered something quite unusual when my parents were selling the family home a few years ago um i found a big old family bible from the uh, early 1800s and it's massive. I mean, you have to have a, a big kitchen table to open it out. And right the way through the family history, whenever there'd been a christening or a birth or a death, um, little notes had been pushed in to this family Bible. And um, my mum and I were going through it um, and reading some of the some of the notes and some of the letters that different family members had sent to each other and pushed in this old Bible to keep. Um, it looks like there's a family history of um, down one side of the family that goes right the way back to the late 1700s, early 1800s, and still going now. Oh. Huh, and that, that included uh, UAP exposures or um, testimonies thereof? Oh, yeah. Letters. Um, uh, letters. My, my great-great-grandparents were farmers um, in a tiny little village in the middle of nowhere in England. And um, there's letters between um, my great-great-great-grandfather and grandmother before they even got married about strange things he'd seen while he was ploughing a field with a horse. Um, and um, then one of their children, um, they had a big family and one of their, um, one of their children had an experience um, with something strange in the middle of the night once one hot summer's night when they were living i mean this is before electricity was even in in these tiny little villages and places um you know she'd woken up in the middle of the night and gone downstairs and found something that resembled a hat box um whirring and clicking around the garden um and then there's uh ball lightning came down the chimney in the cottage that my grandmother um was born in and terrified them all and they all sort of huddled in the corner frightened of this ball lightning which seemed to go around the room and look around the room before it sort of exploded and shattered the window but my my um 
mother had a very strange experience. My grandmother told the story of my mother screaming as a baby in the 1950s. And she ran upstairs to see what was wrong with her and opened the bedroom door and turned the light on and there was a swirling black cloud above her crib, um, which sort of was visible for a few seconds and then dissipated. And <clears throat> my mum later told the story that exactly the same thing had happened to me. She'd heard me um, crying uncontrollably as a baby and she and my dad ran upstairs and opened the door and turned the light on to see this swirling strange swirling cloud black cloud above my bed but I mean one of my earliest memories is of strange clear um, iridescent balls melting through my bedroom window um, and bouncing around my bedroom looking at me and then melting back through the bedroom window and vanishing into the distance as I was standing in my crib so yeah I mean I've lived in America and in Britain and had experiences in both but there seems to be some kind of family connection I've also wondered about that I, I haven't been able to get anything out of my family that's particularly indicative of it there's a following nature to it I mean I've encountered it everywhere I've lived uh, it, it follows you in 62 years I've got a couple of dozen of them that I can remember fairly well and um, and none of them, duration-wise, were terribly long, you know. Um, the longest one I remember was actually a temporal effect that only was like, in, in linear time, was only about 70 seconds, but it ended up being a little over three hours in placement. But, but yeah, you know, the, the, the whole family connection thing, there's so much that we need to work on here in terms of getting more information. And I keep learning because I've had to be so nuts and bolts about everything with the aviation side that, I didn't bother looking at abduction phenomena or anything because I couldn't make any sense out of it. There's just so many stories, and they're all different. A lot of folks aren't well, uh, so they're trying to cope in ufology, which is no place to bring trauma. And uh, so I never really dug into it in a big way, but I knew what my experiences and exposures are, and I'm finding out that I'm pretty unique. The exposures I've had aren't... Everybody else has this psychic stuff going on and all these you know, angelic beings and everything else. And I'm not having anything like that. My, my exposures are nuts and bolts. You, you study nuts and bolts. That's your personal understanding of the world around you. But like, for instance, uh, Chris Bledsoe was a deeply religious man. So his experience of the, uh, was entirely bathed in Christian symbolism. And he probably read books on, you know, Egyptology I, was, I would just add to that, though, that I'm not a scientist, okay? I, I'm, I'm an administrator and a project manager, and um, I'm not a trained scientist. I, I was mentored by by Haynes and Bully uh, and others in how, how to administrate science teams, which mean I had, meant I had to learn about standards of research and publication and um, conduct for, for science, uh, which I did. But my background is, is I'm a martial artist and a Buddhist meditator. My work is dealing with training objective awareness and insight, which is at the core of scientific perspective. Um, and so, you know, when I'm trying to engage these things, I'm doing it from a perspective of observation and logic, which is straight out of the Buddhist perspective. What Buddhism teaches you is objective awareness and, and insight. So that when, when you're looking at the world, you're not coloring it with delusions or things that you and you look at that carefully and, and hold space for that. The, the training mindfulness, contemplation of the body and the body, so your, your posture, your breath, and your physical sensation at all times, 
And then it's contemplation of the feelings in the feelings so that when you have an emotion, you're not the emotion, you're observing it and you're noticing it's happening and you're understanding its purpose in your life, why it occurs. And then the third pillar is mental objects. So you contemplate the things that catch your mind's attention. So when your mind is, you know, you're daydreaming or you're working on some internal construct, you know it. It's not, it doesn't happen unconsciously. And then the last thing is, is integration with the Dharma. So you contemplate all of this stuff in the context of the Dharma. Well, what's the Dharma? The Dharma is the cosmic law. It's the order. It, it's how everything actually plays out and an aware and alert person can see it. Uh, and, and so the basic perspective from the Buddha's mind is ardent, clearly comprehending and mindful. He dwells having overcome covetousness and grief in this world. I don't know how any of this ties in with any kind of a mythology. And from a Buddhist perspective, you wouldn't do that unless there was a reason to actually tie it in. Otherwise, you just look at it for what it is as a manifestation in reality of something that that is a little bit different. You were using vocabulary back there that I I wanted to bring everyone's attention to. For instance, you said um, exposure rather than experience. And when you spoke about them, you, 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 you said the word displacement. I'm wondering why you chose those words. Well, I choose, I I say exposure because it's a little more analytical and it's a little more because you tend to project on these things. They're very sterile. They just come into your space and do what they do. And then you walk away feeling like you've been touched by the hand of God or, or, you know, pursued by demons or whatever it is that you carry away from it. You project that onto it. Uh, Oh, I'm a chosen one. Now you can, you can go down Bledsoe's road and, and, you know, go messianic on the whole thing, or you can, uh, or you can take another tack entirely. I, I tend to hold to the objective perspective. I don't have the answers. I would never stand on a podium and tell everybody that I know what's going on and it's all good and everything's fine. I don't. And, but what I do suspect is that, that, um, they're active. They don't really care what I think. I could project on them all day. So I've been exposed to them and the results of those exposures cause psychological effects and physiological effects to me and the people around me. And um, so I, I just, I, I don't know. I can't, I don't want to call it an experience and make it all warm and fuzzy. I don't want to get into this conversation of, Oh, well, some are good and some are bad. So we should suspend judgment, and not do anything when we know that we're being preyed upon. You know, I, I just, to me, I think it's better to take that clinical path and use a, you know, something just straightforward and, and deal with it that way than, 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 than call them encounters or experiences or visitors or any of that stuff. You know, it's all projection. I don't want to do that. I want to keep it as analytical as possible. And, and same with the, the word displacement. My, the displacement I was referring to was that temporally I, I gained three hours and some minutes in the space of about 70 seconds. So, I was displaced in time forward three hours and some minutes, all, all of us in the car. That, that, that's why I chose those terms. Praying upon us. I've, I've heard that a lot, too. And I, I'm not saying that they're good or bad. Or I'm, I'm, I'm trying to reserve judgment as well. But, but I'd like to get as much information as possible. And if you're willing to share that information with me, I would be. Well, sure. You know, I mean, to, to the point that I can. And, and, and that, of course, I'm learning from the literature and everything, too. But in my own perspective, I shouldn't be having these experiences. You know, they shouldn't I, I, I shouldn't be driving down the road and have having uh, uh, alien entities in their craft pulling up in front of my vehicle. OK, if there was any respect for us, that wouldn't be happening. But they don't respect boundaries. Uh, they don't respect geopolitical boundaries. They don't 
Uh, there might be all kinds of reasons for it, but they don't. They don't respect psychological or physical boundaries. Um, and they will do things to you. They will do things to your children uh, and so on. And, and, you know, we can all come up with excuses for why they might be doing all these things. But the bottom line is we wouldn't let another person do that to us. And that's how we that's how we make our decisions. They need to adapt to us. And if they find that they're if they are benign, but they find that they're getting a hostile response, then they'll change the way they do things and and put everybody at ease. Otherwise, we're right to be defensive. Perhaps they've just got no concept of boundaries, though. If they've got the technology that they've got and they can do the things and manipulate things the way they want, including us, perhaps they've just got no need for boundaries. You can give them all kinds of excuses, but the bottom line is we do have need for boundaries and we do operate with them. And I don't want anybody getting close to my child and indoctrinating them into something that, that they won't even bother to explain to me. Okay, that that that, you know, I don't. I don't find any of that acceptable and, and it, it, it might be the way they do things and the way they think about things. That doesn't mean that it's acceptable or tolerable for us. And, um, you know, I mean, it, but it, if you, if you sort of think about some of our behaviors towards animals, I mean, we'll quite happily tag dolphins, capture them. You know, you, you can see people going out into onto safari and either, you know, there's there's elements of people that will go and shoot animals for sport, and then there's other elements of people that will anesthetize them and tag them because they're interested in monitoring them. I mean, we've got no boundaries with animals because we don't accept their needs. What you're talking about is our perspective on the animals. What about the animals' perspective? Because that's really what it, what what you're dealing with with the other team here is our perspective. And we don't like it. We don't want it done to us. And whether or not we're doing it to other animals and stuff is immaterial. It's being done to us by a higher order. They're just driven and motivated to do what they do. And and either we're okay with it or not. I, I personally am not. The conversation between these two is so enlightening. It really punctuates my understanding of the psychosocial hypothesis. Although I'm not sure that that's what each one of them was getting at. But think about it this way. If these creatures are in some way a mechanism of our unconscious or our super unconscious to show us what we refuse to see before what we refuse to see destroys us, then it is our perception of these creatures' behaviors which is a perfect reflection of how our civilization treats everything else. As individuals, we are caring and loving. As people, we're sociopaths. Jules brings up an interesting point. Human beings treat animals the way that they want because we refuse to accept the fact that they have any kind of consciousness, that they care about boundaries. Similarly, these creatures don't seem to care about any kind of boundaries with us either. And Ted is right too. Looking at it from the animal's perspective, our perspective, we're not okay with it. Maybe it's time to look at this phenomenon for what it could be. Because I have a feeling that its origins could hit quite a bit closer to home than we might like to imagine. Go back and listen to their conversation. But whenever they refer to the aliens or to the creatures or to the creatures' technologies, 
imagine that they're referring to us, to our civilization, to our species, and to our technologies. And I, I, I set up this program, UAP Medical Coalition, um, that, that we've just been getting this thing going in a big way and starting to educate mental health professionals and uh, medical professionals about changes in UAP information so that we can start getting documentation and data and engaging better minds and coming up with understandings and modalities in terms of how to deal with this thing, uh, get over the stigma and start putting our good minds in the mainstream to work on it. Uh, and hopefully that'll lead us to better answers because we've been all living in the wild west up to this point, waiting for somebody to even care enough to help some of us out. Ted, I just want to be cheeky and cut in because I'm going to have to go in a minute. Have you oh, ever good. come across um, a friend of mine in Australia that's been left with quite um, debilitating illness following an encounter? No, I haven't. I haven't met that person, no. Mm-hmm. Right, well, thanks ever so much for letting me join in. I'm sorry I'm going to have to go. It's like nearly 4am here in the UK, but love you all. Thank and you. It's been really interesting. Thank you. Sure. Is there anybody Live, else? laugh, laters. You're awesome, dude. Thanks, Jules. Nice. Yep, thank Bye, you. Bye, Jules. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that guy was. Uh, that guy had some insights that I had never even thought. To. Right. Yeah, that was, that was fascinating to hear. That was good, you know, to get these other perspectives. You know, um, there's a full spectrum of ideas around all of this. And, like, when I hold meetings with a UAP med team, I'll, I'll bring one week, we'll have somebody who's just so pro-alien, they want to just give the planet to them, and then others who are just so anti them that they're practically living in the, the sewers yeah, in front of their yeah. I agree with you, Ted. A hundred percent, I was abducted, no one asked my permission, sexual assault, these are both things in our society that would be considered illegal. You know, No one asked for my permission. And it's like, I don't right. want this thing happen to my my next generation, um, I had an implant. I took this thing. I cut it out of my leg. I, I iced my leg. I bought some of this frozen stuff where I sprayed it on my leg. I cut the thing out. I smashed it. I moved from California to Ohio. I thought they wouldn't follow me. They followed me. I shot at them. Now they shot a blue beam at me. And now I suffer from migraines. And, and it's like, you know, so now I worry about my next generation, you know, and and this has like, been going on for a while, you know, and and yeah, like you yeah. pointing out, and this, others, you know, there's a trend here. It's been, it's been happening, and you know, we've got a couple of perspectives on this. One of them is how do we deal with it as a society, another one is how do we deal with it as an individual. And you know, I I, I choose to, I don't know, I, I I I happen to feel that that if you ground yourself in reality and that you train yourself, you're you're never less than the beings around you. Your, your job is to become as aware as they are. And when you are, then you can interact with them. And I've, I've proven this over and over again. I, I, I spent years swimming with the dolphin pods and, and, and I hang out with all, all, all of the, all of the, all of the non-humans, all the birds and the, all the critters and the bugs and everything. And I see their consciousness and I see their nature. And, and, and I, 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 I train myself to be, to be that aware. And, and in doing so, I get rich interactions from them. And, and at that level, with that level of awareness, when little gray brother's standing there looking you in the eye, there's no reason to feel less than him. You're not a peer. You'll never be a peer to him, but you're not less than him. And, 
grounding yourself in that so that there is no fear and that that he's engaging a warrior you know yeah uh, my first induction was at 66 i was seven years old and my dad he um, took me to confession and i wasn't allowed to speak of it ever again and when i tried to tell my friends at school they called me a retard um so i've been silent yeah. most of my life yeah and, and you know what I'm talking about. Um, and and so uh, finally I had a voice when I came to your whole Twitter, but um, the, the last couple of weeks have been been traumatizing. <laughs> um, so it's been pretty bad. And and, and actually my, when I moved to Ohio, then seven months later after I shot the craft, my son that was in California was found dead in unknown causes. And some more trauma in my life and just like it's just like it just sucks yeah. you know it doesn't help i mean I, I i had i had plenty of issues in my life without having this come along and and it didn't help and the, the but it forced me to adapt and just to get bigger and to grow and i, I did um and you know that's what you got to do is if you're going to survive it otherwise it's going to continue to victimize you and i i refuse sink, to do that yeah. sink or swim right yeah that's right they're the only way out is through so so accept that and face it and and ground yourself and become the most complete strong being that you can be uh, uh, surround yourself with people who are doing the same thing become bigger than your life give up your the idea that you're immortal and stop coveting your existence and start grounding yourself in 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 the reality of things you know life's got a beginning a middle and an end and sometimes it's ugly and sometimes you got to you got to you got to stand on the hill and 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 look it in the eye whatever it is and uh, uh, whatever may come, uh, and that—that's if you ground yourself in that perspective, then then it's pretty hard for anything to come around and knock you off your horse. Before you drifted too far away from the subject, I wanted to say, um, and I'm not trying to compare ufology in any way to occultism, though. I mean, there are some similarities. Obviously, Jacques Vallée brought that to our attention, and amongst others. There was an occultist uh, born Mary Violet Firth. Her name was Dion Fortune. And she said that the greatest threat to occultism at that time were people who were overly skeptic. If anything out of their belief structure happened, they would immediately, you know, like, what's his name? The, the, the arch skeptic. Yeah, Phil Klaus. And then on the other hand, on the other side of the coin, the... the thing that could be most damaging to occultism were people who believed in everything if yeah. someone told them that the sky was pink and they were looking at the sky and it was black they would say that's a pink sky right there i heard it from this man i know for a fact that it's true and and so the the truth is the truth it's not going to change but but it's the it's the perception as a people that we need to change so that we can actually address it okay so we raise our awareness we become aware of something and and in some ways it's quite wonderful in other ways it's not and that's kind of the way life is you know that's not nothing new now now we're just dealing with it with something interesting and unusual but it's it's still you know it, it, it's not perfection it's not divine it's it's got an agenda and you can use it to shape yourself just like be, becoming a soldier shapes you becoming a warrior shapes you you can use it to 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 ground yourself and grow and that's what i did I, I, I took every bit of it and tried to turn it into something helpful for me. Uh, and I went through a lot of, I mean, I, I spent five, six years living under a tree running NARCAP with a laptop. Um, 
because I, I just things had been so broken in my life. Uh, but I was holding it together with NARCAP and I was training myself. And now I'm in a whole other world with it. And that that's the re- this where I am now as a result of that work. But that's what's in front of us for those of us who have fear and those of us who are challenged by all of this uh, or those of us who um, are too ready to embrace it, too confident that we think we know what's going on, all of that. The best way to get through that is to, to ground yourself and start looking objectively at what's happening and stop projecting your desires, your wills, your ambitions or your wants onto the thing and let it just be what it is and look at it. And it will tell you what it is. Reality will unfold itself and then you'll know how, how to engage. And you won't be fooled by all the talk and all the chatter and, and everybody that's operating from a more delusional perspective. You said you've been probed. What exactly is that? Well, I had a um, I had an encounter when I was 18 where I was ambushed out, out in the brush, out in the Rosebud, in eastern Montana, and uh, um, had a uh, they, they shoved something through the, the, my left eye orbit into my head and it was like being shot through the head with an arrow i don't know whether it was a hypodermic or a uh, a probe device of some kind it was thin and long and they just rammed it right through my head and it was like being shot through the head with an arrow you know i i thought i was going to die uh there was no anesthetic or preparation or anything they just had me on the ground i couldn't move and they pulled an eyelid up and slid it under my eyelid and behind my eyeball and just rammed the thing right through my head and uh so, yeah, that's a probe, I would suppose. Um, you know, you could judge them any way you want to, and I, I, that's why I say they're negative. They're negative because they don't explain themselves. They just come and they do whatever they're going to do, and nobody's asking me or talking to me about it. Um, that's, that's rape is what that is. It's rape. That's not meant words here. No question about it. And it doesn't put them on my good side. I, I, I feel very defensive around all of it. Um, is there a way to protect yourself, like, are there there certain uh, I don't know what something that you can do that would deter them? I think the best thing you can do is be as unpalatable to them as possible. Whenever you think about them, don't give them a good thought. Um, make sure that that you're just flat not available. You know, I, there are days I will not go outside just for the chance that I might see them. I won't look up. You know, I mean, I just I just try not to give them any any access into me. Um, you know, you got to kind of set your mind on not, not, not having it, you know, just fundamentally not having it. And I don't know that that's enough protection, but I know that that's where it all starts. So do they not come into your house? Let's say they, they want to abduct you. Isn't it that physical matter doesn't really deter them? They walk through walls. They, they've never had a problem finding me and they, uh, I'll encounter them in spaces that I didn't know I was going to go to until 15 minutes before I went there and they'll be there. Most of my encounters are not in, in the home. They're they're out when I'm out moving around, uh, out traveling and stuff. And I, I live outdoors quite a bit. Okay. I, I, I spend a lot of time, uh, in the bush. I live off grid in Hawaii and in Alaska. And, uh, so a good portion of my time is outdoors. I know that if they wanted to get at me, they can get at me no matter where I am. They can do it. They can do it when I'm in a car. They can do it when I'm out in the bush. They can do it anywhere. Have you ever had an abduction where there's like tens of people there and they don't know what's going on? Or have you ever seen them in a crowd, let's say, where other people don't notice, but you see? You know, when people have been with me, they've been 
subject to exactly what I've been going through. They were seeing it. They, they, they were aware of it. They knew it was there. They described it the same way I did. But if you were standing next to me when I had an experience, you'd see it. You'd be having an experience, too. I understand why people who have these experiences have PTSD, because it's something you can't control. You know, you have to kind of come to terms with it in your own way, I guess. That's right. All of that, because we need help. Um, and, and, and it looks like a lot more people have had these exposures than anybody wants to admit. And that, that's concerning. Um, I mean, a lot of people have mental illness and they hide it behind alien stuff. You know, they make up things or they confabulate or whatever. But, but on the other side of it, there are, there seem to be a lot of people that have these experiences. And I know that as men, men will never admit to a sexual assault. Men get raped by men. Men get raped by women. And men do not talk about it. So if they had an encounter where they were attacked or assaulted and it involved a sexual component, the chances of, of a man talking about it are pretty slim. Uh, compared to a woman might be more willing to talk about it. There's a lot of kumbaya out there and racing vibrations, baloney. Nobody's talking about the people that are affected by this in a negative way. You have experiences like Jeff Ramirez that says, if you ever confront these guys, they're going to be rougher on the edges when they handle you. You know, just ask them, what do you want with me? Where do you come from? You know, and I would say, as much fear as you feel, try to remain calm, because uh, I, I don't know why they do this stuff. It's like they want to shock you or something, like trigger something in your brain, you know? A lot of people are going to be seeking help. And enough is enough. It makes my heart hurt. For those of us who've been in all of this for all this time, you know how difficult it was to carry credibility and, and to be an experiencer at the same time. Um, and I've just come to a point where I can actually step up for all of us. You know, I'm, I'm not the only one, but but I'm happy to, happy to be part of it and, and to help make a difference. We all need this. And um, uh, I don't know where it's going to lead, but but it, I don't want things to stay the way they've been. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And, and you know, the, the more that we are aware of what's going on, the more that we can think about it, formulate a response to it that's helpful both to our leaders and, and to the other team. I'm concerned that in the process of us being able to detect them now, which is what we're working on at AIAA and what's kind of happening between the lines with the, the Navy and the Air Force, is that when the other team knows that we can see them, they may stop hiding. And it may change the way they relate to us, and that might not be a good next step. But, it, but it's, it's, it's the rhythm of battle, you know, it's, it's the rhythm of exchange. I learned that hunger is a symptom Of adopting bad behavior I bit my tongue last night Woke up with blood on my pillow I woke up thirsty Words make less sense to me these days Faces look flat and unfamiliar
so 